Hi, welcome to The Wine Beat. I'm Craig. The Wine Beat is an exploration of the world's great wine regions, sometimes off the beaten track. Today, we're going to the Wachau in Austria. In this episode, I'm talking with Nicholas Saas of the Nikolai Hof Winery in the Wachau. The chance to interview Nikki at such a prestigious wine estate was exciting enough. After all, Nikolai Hof is the only winery in Austria to ever earn 100 points from Robert Parker. But only when I arrived and started chatting with Nikki did I realize how I had come to the epicenter of Austrian wine history. From pre-Roman Celtic times through the Roman occupation at this site, through the Catholic Church Center here, on to modern times, Nikolai Hof has been right at the very heart of the culture, politics, agriculture, uh, winemaking of Austria. This episode is packed with history and winemaking and biodynamics and geography and grape varieties and a bit of magic. Let's just jump in, but make sure you visit the website for the companion article called Nikolai Hof, History, Wine, and Energy in the Wachau. It's a great piece, I have to say. This is the wine beat from Nikolai Hof in the Wachau. Let's go boom. I'm in the Wachau in Austria, and I'm at the Nikolai Hof wine estate just outside of Krems, actually in the town of, what's the name of the town? Pronounce it for me. Mautern. Mautern. And I'm with Nicholas Saas, the proprietor and winemaker at Nikolai Hof wine estate. And there's a lot of very interesting and deep history. There's a tremendous backstory to this winery. We're in the Wachau, which is the most famous winemaking region in Austria. We're in this tremendously beautiful place where the Danube River is crowded in by the mountains to create these steep hills and, and winding uh, contours of the river. There's a story behind the Nikolai Hof wine estate that goes back 2,000 years. There's so much to talk about, Nicholas. I'm going to just throw it over to you to maybe start. You tell me what you would like to talk about. So at first, thanks for coming. Welcome. And of course, the first thing is a sip of wine. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, we're sitting here in the, in the chapel, in the Agapit chapel from, from Nikolaihof. We have some wines in front of us, five different varieties. Um, and I will start with the history of Nikolaihof. So we have uh, about 2,000 years of history. So here at this base where the Nikolaihof is now was... Um, a Kel um, sorry, a Roman army base, Castel Fabianis. So 2,000 years um, ago, they built some walls in here. They built part of the cellar here. So that's really very, very special that it's really used for 2,000 years as a wine winery. And then later on, it was a, it was a monastery. Uh, at first, Kremsmünster owned it, and later on, it came... Uh, it was owned by the monastery of St. Nicola in Passau since 985. So since that year, since 985, the name Nikolai, St. Nikolai at the beginning, is existing here for this property. That's so awesome. 11 years older than Austria. That's been the name since 985. But 2,000 years of what you believe is probably continuous wine growing and winemaking on this property. Uh, definitely, yes, because every Roman soldier had the right for two liters wine a day. So that's why they, I think that's one of the reasons why they really choose this area here for some army bases. Because it, of course it's much easier to, to plant wine than to transport wine. 
So, and then, of course, when it was owned by the church, uh, of course, we know uh, wine is a very ritual thing in the, in, the, in the Christian church. And so, for sure, they were using it uh, uh, as a winery, as the wine cellar and everything uh, in that time. I have to ask this question because it's kind of fascinating. So, you think it likely was they were growing wine here because the, the Roman army base was nearby? Or do you think they chose the place because it was a great wine winemaking, you know, location because of the, the, the geography and the soils and everything? Uh, no, I'm sure they choose it because of the wine. No, I think it was just the Danube. Uh, the Danube was the, the border of the Roman Empire. Right. And so of the Limes. And so that's why we're there here. But, uh, but of course it sounds... <laughs> Yeah. Yes, of course, it sounds better when, when we're saying, no, they choose the area because of the good wine. But that's just kidding. It's really... <laughs> okay. okay. Anyway, I took you off track. So you're t telling us about the history of the, uh, um, the state. Yeah, then since 985, it was, uh, it's belonging to the monastery of St. Nikolai. Uh, then um, maybe some, uh, some of our listeners were already in Vienna in the St. Stephen's Cathedral, which is the biggest church in Vienna, and the first document to build this St. Stephen's Cathedral was signed here at Nikolaihof. So this was really the center of the church for the whole big area. So it was a very, very powerful, strong place already in that time. You're saying that this place that we're sitting in now, and we are sitting in a chapel, the original chapel, part of the original chapel. Uh, that's and you're sitting on the original uh, bishop's chair, not from here, it's from another church, but this is an original bishop's chair. Okay, well it'll be, that will be in the show notes in a picture, so <laughs> people will be able to see me sitting in the chair. Um, so, and we are in the chapel, which is why we have the acoustics that we have, but um, if I understand you correctly, then this uh, place was the, was, was the center for the, the church locally, even, even, even more so than Vienna. Uh, yeah, the Church of Vienna belonged to Nikolaihof. Oh. So that that, um, yeah. that place here, it was the whole, uh, all the economical things from the uh, Bistum Passau, so the big area of the church. It was from, also Budapest was part of it, going to, uh, to the other side of Austria, about 700 kilometers away from here, to the Bodensee. Everything, all the economic things were decided here at Nikolaihof. That's incredible. So this was not, not really just local, it was really for the whole... This was almost the regional just, center, yeah. and quite a big region. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, go, go ahead. But um, luckily they built all the big uh, monasteries, cathedrals around in the area here, like uh, the monastery of Göttweig, just here on the hill. Uh, Dürnstein, the most famous church in, in, in Wachau with the Blue Tower. Um, everything was founded here from Nikolaihof. And so the, the, the Nikolaihof was at one point not big enough, not representative enough for the church. So they used it just as a farming place for a couple of hundred years. And then luckily in 1803, the monastery in Passau was closed. It was stolen by the government. And so they had no use for the Nikolaihof anymore. So they sold it. And so that was the chance for my family, then a couple of years later, in 1894, to buy this property. So, so your, my, your family history goes to 1894 here? On this property. But our family is much older. Our family crest, we have a very nice family crest, um, is from 1365. And, and from this immediate area? Your family comes from this immediate uh, area? It, 
originally comes from Bavaria, okay. uh, but a couple of hundred years already they are here in Mautern, in, in the area of Mautern, not just in Mautern, just uh, also around in Stein on the other side of the Danube and so. Were they winemakers before that? Uh, my great-grandfather was winemaker. Actually, he was, uh, he was managing a big farming company. Uh, they had a lot of farming, they had wine, they had animals. So, and he, it was a very big farm, so he got a lot of money. And that's why the chance how he could buy the Nikolaihof. But um, uh, my families are coming, some of them from the politics, some were doctors. And so, so not just wine growing, it was really more right. everything. In terms of the size of the estate, was it about the same size then, or has it changed in size over the years since your great-grandfather uh, bought it? Actually, it was much bigger in former times. We had, um, we had um, not so much wine as we have now, but we had a lot of agriculture. But it was very popular, or it was normal in the past, that when a family has two sons, they divided the whole property in two. Course. So 50% for this, 50% for the others. So we lost a lot of land to, to the, the other part of the family. Luckily, we could buy a lot of uh, vineyards back, mm -hmm. but still it's much, much smaller than uh, it was in that time before it was divided. So it's now passed down from your great-grandfather through your grandfather through your father, and now, and now you're the proprietor here. Yes, so I, I um, got the property, the winery, from my father in 2005, so 14 years ago, so also quite a long time already. Um, and was your father a passionate winemaker? Uh, my father was really one of the pioneers in Austria, because in, when he started in 1960, uh, my grandfather died one day after my father's 18th birthday. So he was 18 years old and he had to manage all this winery, also all this, the whole property here, the vineyards. And it was really not an easy time because um, this area here was Russian occupation until 1954. And of course, this was not a very easy time for, for everybody. Like always, occupation is not, not easy. So, but the property was not in a good shape. Uh, it was not bombed in the war. That was, was luckily okay. Um, but of course, the economic was down in that time and nobody spend a lot of money for wine but he started really to make uh, high quality wine he started to bottle wines because before that it was common to sell it in casks right small casks and the, the restaurants they bought one small cask they put it yeah. somewhere in the in in their house and they were using it from the tap they would serve it from yeah. the cask yeah yeah uh, but he was one of the first in austria who started making high quality wines and bottling wines and also bring it to the the western part of austria which was That's interesting. Uh -huh. So he was a pioneer in terms of modern wine in Austria. Yeah. Uh, and what made it, motivated him to do that? I mean, just... just quality. It's just quality thinking. That was a very interesting time for us that um, we had absolutely no money for chemical treatments in this time because economic was so bad. Right. So my father said, I don't want to spend money for things what my father, my grandfather, they didn't need it. And so I don't want to use it. So at the beginning, in the 60s, uh, it was an economical decision. It was out of necessity almost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then economic was getting better. My father produced good wine. Uh, he earned more money. And then he decided, I could spend money for these chemical treatments now, but I don't want to. So it was still an economical decision. 
And then in 1971, my mother came on the winery because she married my father. And um, there was already an anthroposophic children's doctor, part of the family, also good friends of the family. Anthroposophic is the philosophy of Rudolf Steiner. So Waldorf School, Waldorf Kindergarten, Biodynamic. So this everything is based on the philosophy of Rudolf Steiner. So this lady, uh, uh, Aunt Jutta, we said to her, uh, took this 19-year-old girl, my mother was 19 when she got married, and brought her all the knowledge about the moon calendar, about the biodynamic preparates, about all these things uh, about nature. And so since that, since 1971, we are working biodynamic. I know we're going to talk a little bit about biodynamics because it's important to your winemaking. But I didn't know that, and probably some people who are listening to this didn't know that, that Rudolf Steiner's principles that led to biodynamics in agriculture are also applied in medicine and other areas. It's not something I was familiar with. Mm-hmm. No, he had, three, he, had, he had three things what he uh, was teaching or explaining. The main thing was the education. Uh, that was his favorite thing to, to uh, change the educational system in, in school and so. The, the second one was the, was the medicine part, which was really fantastic how this uh, worked. Uh, and the, the agriculture part, uh, he was not really in that thing uh, because uh, the uh, educational thing was not working very well. So he was very disappointed and he said he don't want to start with the third thing. But some, um, some uh, farmers came to him in, uh, right after the First World War where all these um, nutrition starts. That, uh, because nutrition, uh, um, it's the same material as you made black powder for guns and so. War was over, so the industry had a lot of stuff and they had to find some stupid people who were buying this stuff. And this was unfortunately the farmers. Mm-hmm. And because the fruits were getting bigger and, 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 and looked bigger and nicer, uh, and some farmers, they realized after two years using these things that they're getting more diseases, uh, they're not so strong enough, they're tasting not as intense as without using these, these nutritions, these artificial nutritions. Um, and they were really going to him and for two years they said, please, what is your meaning? What, is, what do you think about this? And then after two years, he started a lecture about biodynamic farming. Fascinating. But I, I did kind of interrupt again uh, in your flow of thought there about the family history and how you got to where you are now. But, uh, but I know biodynamics is, a, is, is, a, is an important thread through the whole story. I think we should drink another glass of wine. Oh, okay. sip of, not a glass of wine, just a sip of wine. Another sip of wine. So uh, the first wine we had was, do you mm, mind uh, reminding it's a, me? It's a Grüner Wettliner Zwickel. Uh, Grüner Wettliner is an Austrian variety. It's a, one of the most important Austrian varieties. Um, it's very hard to, to, to pronounce. Grüner Wettliner. Uh, it's very common to say just Grüner or just Cruvée for Grüner Weltliner. It's a variety that's it, becoming much more popular throughout the world, I think. Yes, so it's, 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 in former times it was just existing in Austria and the countries around Austria, which was former part of Austria during the Austrian-Hungarian monarchy. 
so in Czech, in Slovakia, in Hungary, they had a little bit. But now it's getting more popular. Also in Australia, they have it. They have it in Canada a little bit. Also in California. It's quite popular. So it's really getting popular all over the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It is becoming quite popular. You but see it on many, many wine menus, uh, restaurant menus. You know, it's quite popular mm-hmm. now. But of course, in Austria, it's the they're the best. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> so this one you call, this is on the label, it's called a Zwickel. Mm-hmm. Zwickel. Zwickel is the unfiltered beer in Austria. Okay. And I love to drink this kind of beers, the unfiltered beers. And that's why I named my unfiltered wine also like the beer, Zwickel. It's so it's unfiltered wine, it's a little bit cloudy. And for me, it's a perfect wine for, for a hot summer day, for example. Sitting outside... Uh, on the terrace, on the bar, and just enjoying a glass of wine, not thinking a lot, or speaking a lot about the wine, just enjoying. It's delicious. But that was the first one we toasted the, at the opening with that Zwickel. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we've got something else in our glass. The second wine is the Grüner Veltliner Federspiel from the vineyard im Weingebirge. So again, a Grüner Veltliner. Uh, Federspiel is the quality step. So in the Wachau, we have three different qualities. A Steinfeder, very light, basic wine, easy drinking, with maximum of 11.5 alcohol. So, then, so take us through for a moment the three quality levels, because I think this is quite important, because people will see it on the labels. So the three categories in the Wachau is, the first one is Steinfeder. It's a very light wine with maximum of 11.5 alcohol. Okay. Then the next one is Federspiel. It must be between 11.5 and 12.5 alcohol. Federspiel. Federspiel, that's correct. Okay. And both of these wines must be under 4 grams of residual sugar. So they must be very dry. So they're lighter in alcohol, the two different levels, Mm -hmm. but they're quite dry. Yes. Okay. They have to be very dry. Very dry, actually, yeah. And the third one is the Smaragd level smaragd smaragd it means emerald yeah has this very interesting spelling s-m-a-r-a-g-d smaragd that's correct Mm -hmm. and uh, the name is coming from the emerald lizard we have a lizard here in the area uh, which is has really very very beautiful green color emerald color and that's why we 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 named our highest quality here in the area um, for dry wines um, Smaragd, emerald. Higher alcohol. It must be 12.5 alcohol or higher. And more residual sugar? It's allowed 8 grams of residual sugar, but still it must be a dry wine. Still dry. Yes. Those are the recognized three three quality designations. Yes, it's it's a local organization, the Vinea Wachau, Nobilis Districtus. It's an it's a organization to protect also the area and also protect the wines from the area against some label piratery things or so. Or it's really a very, very strict system and it's also forced by the government uh, if you're doing something wrong. Okay. It so is, it's, it's, it's quite strict. It is regulated quite, yes. quite strict. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's a fantastic description of the three quality levels. And so we are having a Grüner Weltliner again. Mm-hmm. But this is the this is the this is your Federspiel. That's correct. It's a okay. Federspiel quality. Okay. And it's a single vineyard wine from the vineyard im Weingebirge, mm-hmm. in the Wine Mountains. And this is also you said already. We have so many different things to speak about. Yeah. Uh, this name for this vineyard is existing since 511. 
there was a holy man living here, Saint Severin, and one of his um, students wrote a book about him, and he was mentioned this vineyard already in that book in 511. Fantastic. You can also tell us about your philosophy in terms of single vineyard, because I, I honestly don't know, um, so it'll be interesting to talk about single vineyard philosophy and trying to bring out those characters, but this is a single mm. vineyard wine from... Um, 2018 vintage. And I'm looking on the label, and it, it, does it have the vineyard name on the label? On the back side. Also, there it is. Okay. So here, on the front side, we are trying to keep our labels as simple as possible because it does it, it makes no sense to bring so much different information on it right. uh, because um, if you go in a wine shop you see 20 different wines or 50 or 200 and you cannot read all the information it's um, you, it's yeah it's too much information so, so we have quite thank you we have quite um, different colors mm -hmm. So every, almost every wine has a single color. Okay. So that's, you can see, oh, the orange wine uh, is also the, always the Grüne Wettliner Federspiel. Right. These bottles will be on the, uh, on, the, on, the, on the website, on the show notes for this program, so people can see the picture and see the labels. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. um, I keep interrupting you, but we, that's what we're drinking right now is the single vineyard. That's correct. Federspiel. Yeah. And single vineyards, it's, I have, <clears throat> all together, I have about... 54 plots, 54 different vineyard sites. And of course, I cannot make every different parcel with a single vineyard wine, course, yeah. because I would have more than 50 different uh, wines on the list. So uh, my idea is, for example, for the Zwickel or for the Hefeabzug, which is a, uh, also a Grüne Wettliner, what we have on the, on the market, uh, they are not from single vineyards. So they're from different vineyards. It could, it can be a single vineyard in, in, in some years, but normally it's a, it's, it's a blend of different vineyards. Right. But still 100% one variety. So I'm not blending varieties. It's really just from different plots. Okay. Now we could talk for a moment, you could talk for a moment about the, uh, the, the benefit, the, the reason why you would do a single vineyard. With one of these you might pick out whether it's this one or one of the others you might tell us why that exhibits something special based on where the vineyard is that's so, always interesting mm -hmm. no, for for a single vineyard wine you really can work on the terroir you can um, you can bring the soil type in the wine you can bring the the, the climate the weather the the, the which uh, direction is faced is north faced is south faced uh, you really can 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 bring out the character from that spot, from that vineyard, in the wine, but it makes no sense to make it from all the, all the different because it's then sometimes the difference are not really big or you cannot taste it. So we are really focusing on that uh, vineyards on that plots where we really can bring uh, something special out, yeah, a special minerality or a special deepness of some less vineyards of a different soil type. Okay. So yeah. So we're going to go through through three more wines, and I'll, mm -hmm. you may decide to tell us about one of them mm -hmm. in terms of why that is vineyard specific and what it brings. You know what mm -hmm. specifically it brings out, but that's up to you. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, jumping around a bit, but we're talking. We were talking about the history, uh, which is quite fascinating. Um, we talked about the quality levels. Uh, we've talked about your uh, a little bit about your philosophy, and we touched on the biodynamics. 
What else should we talk about? Hmm. About the area. Yeah, the of course. The Wachau. You know, the Wachau How's is... my pronunciation? Wachau. Wachau, perfect. That's really good, yeah. <laughs> I um, was saying Wachau until yeah. you <laughs> corrected me, so Wachau. The, 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 the SH in, in, in the German language is normally a very soft Wachau. Wachau. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so the area is, it's a World Heritage Site. It's from the UNESCO, so it's very yes. well also yep. protected. Right. Um, and um, it's because of all these stone terraces which we have. So it's a, it's a valley. Uh, the Danube was, was forming this valley. And the, this, uh, more on the north side than on the, on the south side of the Danube, we have all these handmade terraces. About 1,000 years ago, they were really, did a really hard job to dig all these terraces in the, in the slopes, in the sides. Because it's mainly rock. Yeah, maybe the monks would do that because monks being... I think not the, really the monks, it was more the people who okay, thinking that they're coming in heaven when they're doing some digging. <laughs> well, it's quite striking because as you come in from Vienna and, and you're coming across that quite flat farmland, but then the hills on both sides start to close in to, to, to the Danube and the Danube is pressed between these these mountains and then when you get to this region especially on the north side there's these steep cliffs and there's vineyards in the most impossible places that's really hard to work there and luckily in the last couple of years it's getting popular again to reactivate some of these very old vineyards mm. because it's uh, the Wachau at the moment is about 1400 hectares mm-hmm. it's about 2500 2,800, 2,900 acres. So it's quite small area uh, with more than 1,000 owners. It is, that is, that is small in acreage. For, yeah. yeah. And with 1,000 owners, so it's very small, small structure homes. and everything. Yeah, okay. And of course, in, in, the, in the past, if someone has just a very small uh, vineyard somewhere in the mountains where you cannot go with any machines and so, and they were working on some other, in a, I don't know, in a factory or so, they had no interest to work again as a work in that vineyards. So they just let the nature was as growing over these vineyards. Right. And since a couple of years, it's getting popular to reactivate these old terraces. That's wonderful that they're bringing That's pretty back cool. some of those. Um, and you, work, you have to work those by hand. I mean, obviously, you can, there's no way you can get machinery up to some of those vineyards. Yes. Can you get animals up to those vineyards? Do they work them with animals, or it's all human labor? Uh, no, it's all human labor. Yeah. I mean, some of them are just perched on the edge of a cliff. It's ridiculous. It's really, yeah. But luckily, it's not a lot of accidents happen. <laughs> so that's really quite good. It's something to see. And it is beautiful. And it's uh, no, no surprise that it's a World Heritage Site. No, the best, the best uh, way to explore the Wachau is with a ship, with one of these uh, day cruise ships from Krems to, to Melk. It's about three hours of a boat trip. Yes. And that's really fascinating. Because with the car you're passing quite fast, you cannot see a lot. Yeah. But with the with the boat it's really it's really fascinating. That's a that's that's I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of people would come by car and they might just mm-hmm. drive along and which as I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but your your recommendation is to take the boat. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. And because it's also if you go from here to Melk you can visit the Abbey of Melk, which is one of the most fascinating and uh, nice abbeys 
especially also the 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 bibliotheque, mm-hmm. the library, sorry, the library, the library yeah. um, is it's really fantastic to see. So you can go from Brems with the ship to Melk, visit the library, and take the train back, for example. Okay, good. That's fantastic. Yeah. Or a bike. I'll pick that up in the show notes for the program. Yeah. I'll add something mm-hmm. about the the boat tours yeah. and the and the importance of seeing it from the from the perspective of the Danube, looking up. Okay, mm-hmm. and Melk. You know. Um, Okay, great. Um, right. Well, now, now, where do we go with this conversation? What else is important for us to talk about? I think we should speak about the next wine. Okay, good because idea. this is a very special wine. Uh, this is called Baumpresse, and this was pressed with our old uh, wooden press. Okay, so this is important for anybody who's listening who's fascinated by this to see the either to go to the Nikolaihoff website or to uh, uh, or to look at the show notes on our uh, for this podcast because this press is incredible. And um, I'm sorry to take, you know, steal your thunder by jumping in there, but the, 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 the importance of this can't be underestimated. Nikolai Hoff is still using this incredible old wooden press. This press is 350 years old, and the beam from that press is, was made from one tree. So it's one piece of wood. And, and it's, it's the, massive. Yeah, it's an el- it was an elm tree, or it is an elm tree. Um, and it's the biggest existing wooden press in the world, and we're using it still. Three hundred and fifty years old. Yeah, yeah, and it, I mean it's basically the original, all the original. It's most of the parts are original, not the floor, for example. But these are things what you constantly have to replace. But the main thing, the the the, the, the big tree and and the, the side things, that is all original from three hundred. And how, how long ago. is that main beam? Twelve meters long. Yeah, it takes up a. Big cellar area, just just for that beam that stretches across that creates the leverage and the weight to press the grapes. That's very cool. So the wine we're going to drink right now is uh, is from it, that press. It's from that press. It's a 2013 Grüner Veltliner. 2013. Okay, yes. it's got lots of bottle age already. Uh, actually, not bottle age. This was uh, uh, bottled just last year, so oh. it's some cask age. Really? And that, that's a very special thing for Nikolaihof that we are famous for all the vintages. So we will speak more about that with the next wine uh, because this was a couple of years longer in the cask. Um, and, but if you ever see a Nikolaihof bottle on a list or two Nikolaihof bottles, the same wine with different uh, vintages, always take the older one. Always take the older one. Yeah. They age well. They age very well, yeah. And that's a big thing about biodynamic But farming. this wine, and uh, I, the, the, we'll have pictures of the casks in the cellar as well on the show notes, so people can see these very large 10,000 liter, uh, and there's one that's even larger than that, the casks. So this wine would have stayed in wooden cask for how long? This 2013 that we're um, drinking? It was five years. Five years yeah. in wooden cask. In wooden cask. But no, no, it's not a barrique cask, so it's not okay tasty. That's a very important thing, because normally, if you think about uh, oak casks, wooden casks, um, you would think about barrique cask, mm-hmm. 220 liters. Yes. But this one was in one of our smallest casks. We have 1,800 liters. Okay. And, so, and they are old. So the newest cask, what we have down in the cellar, is from 1991. So all the casks are neutral. They are not adding uh, oak flavor in the wine. So five years in cask and then about a year in the bottle. Mm-hmm. Very distinctive on the nose. 
I won't try to describe it because it's very interesting. I think describing wine is very, it's very difficult. Of course, it's it's interesting to hear some words, but it's really interesting. It has all those, the the you know, so the the clear Gruner Veltliner characteristics in the last wine we drank, but this one brings some very unique uh, characters. Yeah. I guess it's from that old press. It's all it's all together, of course. It's the old wine press. It's the biodynamic farming. It's the old cask. So it's everything together. Okay, that's an incredible treat to be able to drink a wine that has come from a 350-year-old press. And it's beautiful wine. Um, how many bottles do you make a year of that wine? Uh, so from that wine, we're producing about a little bit more than 2,000 bottles. Okay. And the total production of Nikolaihof is about 95,000 bottles. Okay. So a couple of percent of your, your production goes into this one. And the name of it again is, so people can recognize it? It's Baumpresse Grüner Veltliner. Baumpresse. Wooden Beam press. press. Beam Wooden press. press, yeah. Okay. Beautiful wine. Thanks for that. Thanks for sharing that. Okay. Uh, but that is an important part. I mean, it, it's, it's one of the centerpieces. This property has so much history. When I say the property, I'm talking about the buildings that we're in now. We're in this chapel, but there's a Roman series of Roman buildings here. It's, it's all very beautiful. The giant... What's the name of the tree that's in the courtyard? It's a linden tree. The linden tree. So there's many, many places that are focal points here. I think you could you could tell, tell us about the, the Celtic um, ritual site. That would be interesting. This place is like a giant museum, and the, that that old 350-year-old press is only one of many place, many parts of this building that are historical, and, and it is like a museum. Yeah, it's it's really very fascinating. It's very often we have people from architecting, history, universities and so here and there just looking on one special wall for half an hour because the wall is 1,800 years old. The, the, the concrete between the stones is from that time, originally, yeah, from that time. And so that's really, you could spend hours and hours and hours just to, 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 to look at the building here. Yeah, yeah. And I, you, I mentioned briefly that Celtic celebration or ritual site mm -hmm. that you've got in the courtyard. I was aware that you know the Romans had this famous battle with the Celts in in uh, in France that went on for hundreds of years, but I didn't realize that that same um, cultural history extends out to this part mm -hmm. of Austria, where there was a Celtic population and and they were here before the Romans. Now we have this Celtic place here. It's um, if you, if you look on one of our labels, uh, there is a symbol on it. It's a, like a cross with some with four points. And this symbol is a Celtic symbol for being on the right place. And this, this symbol was not originally here at Nikolaihof. But we found that in a, in a book about Celtic science. And we have this spot, this holy Celtic spot in front of our church. And so we just put these things together, the symbol and the, and the spot. And now when you come here in Nikolaev in the courtyard, you can go on this special spot and taking some energy. This is really fascinating, isn't it? When you think about some of these things, the Celts found this to be an important spiritual site. It was a, it was a, it was a, a center for maybe for rituals, but it was mm -hmm. a spiritual site for the Celts before mm -hmm. the Romans. So we, mm -hmm. you know, uh, more than 2000 years ago, who knows how many years ago. And then it's evolved to, well, obviously the Romans came and, and then the church became 
had this as we talked about earlier as a center for the the whole region the yeah. whole extended region there must be something special about this spot definitely and also this church where we, we are sitting just in a small in the in the in the remaining part of the church it was bigger in former times and right on this uh, spot where now this sign is in the ground was the altar so also the the, the christians they they occupied these spots from the the other religions yeah and of course they know about this special special spots that's why they occupied it but the other reason was just to kick the others out <laughs> of course of course okay um uh... There's so much to talk about, as we kind of alluded to at the very beginning. We're going to run out of time. I think it's it's unfortunate that, that we only have, you know, the 40 minutes or so to do this because there's so much more to talk about. But we've we, there are some things that we still need to touch on. Um, what would you like to do next in the conversation? Um, should we speak about the next wine? Always, yes. Because, when, because before we speak about it, we can taste it. And that's always the best. That's the best part of a winemaker. Tasting wine. It is. It, it, yeah. It's one good reason to get into <laughs> the wine business and to become a winemaker is all of the wine mm. tasting. Yes, let's try this one. What are we having next? We're jumping to the, to the last wine, what we have here. It's a 2002 vintage Vinotech Riesling. Um, this was bottled uh, last summer after 16 years in cask. This was 16 years in a 6,000 liter cask. Okay. And just wow. bottled recently. And that is really very special because nobody else is doing it. Is that with white wine. Everybody is... Also, a lot of wineries are storing red wine for a long time, but not, uh, not white wine. 2002. The, the vintage on this is 2002. Mm -hmm. 16 years in, in cask. Mm -hmm. the, the, what kind of wood are those casks made of, please? Um, most of it is local oak, okay. also Austrian oak. Also Quercus Robur, they tell you, also the Latin name, Quercus mm -hmm. Robur. And some of them, but just two or three, three are made from acacia. Okay. But of course, as you described earlier, none of these are in small casks, and the point isn't to have oak influence whatsoever, or, yeah. or very minimal. This, this is 16 years in cask before mm -hmm. it was bottled. Wow. And there are two reasons why my, my parents started that in the late 80s. Uh, in the 80s, in the late 80s, this young wine wave started in Austria that everybody wants to drink young wine. And we don't like this. <laughs> you went to the, for, went the for the basic wines, for everyday drinking wine, it's good to drink a young wine. It's no problem. Sure. But for a higher quality, for a smaragd level wine or, or some special dry Spätlese or so, uh, it's much, much better when they're getting older. And they are totally close to the beginning in the first couple of years, but then they're ripening their opening than himself and uh, they're getting better it's like good cheese it also needs time this is really magnificent on the nose it's just completely different it's so rich and mellow but very distinctive and we had also our biggest success on an international wine tasting um, with, uh, with one of uh, the Vinotech wines. It was a, a 95 Riesling, mm -hmm. which we have stored for 14 years in cask, mm -hmm. bottled in 2012. Yeah. 
Um, and David Schildknecht, uh, he was uh, writing in that time for uh, Robert Parker, the Weinadukat, and he rated it with 100 points as first dry Riesling worldwide and first Austrian wine ever, and still the only Austrian wine. So the first dry Riesling to ever get 100 points, is that, is that what you... Yeah. And the first Austrian wine, the only Austrian wine the to date... So far, still the Austrian only. To, to, earn, to earn 100 points. Well, this is a real, really special treat. Thank you so much for sharing it because it's rare, obviously. And, and the, it is just so unique and beautiful. It's so fine. It's so elegant. It's a wine with just 12.5 alcohol and it's dry. Really? And wow. we, we, here you can see that good wine does not need high alcohol. It must be balanced and then it's good. It's not, it's 15.5 alcohol and then it's a good wine. It's just a heavy wine, but it does not mean that it's a good wine. It also can be a perfect wine with 12, 12.5 alcohol. It's just an experience to drink. It's, that's, that's just magnificent. Thanks. Thank you for that. Is the name just Vinotech? Vinotech Riesling. Okay. So we, it's, uh, it can be, from, so it's normally from a single vineyard, but we are not writing the vineyard on it. Okay. Because for me, for, for me here, the more important information is the, the, the vintage and the word Vinotech. Yeah. And we want to, to keep it simple and, and just showing uh, whether people have it in mind that just 2002 and Vinotech. Well, that That's makes right. sense. I mean, you can decide, you as the winemaker can make, decide which vineyard is going to contribute the, the wine this year to the Vinotech. Yeah, yeah. yeah but actually we, we never know if it will be a Vinotech or not. Right. Because there are two reasons why we're doing it. One is the quality, that it's getting be better when it's getting older. Mm -hmm. But the other reason is the security. Because when we, we have at the moment a little bit more than two harvests from the quantity down in the cellar, in my storage area. Some in the casks, or most of it, so half of it in the cask, half of it in the bottle. So when we have a, in springtime a late frost, for example, or in summer, the hail is coming and destroying everything, I still have wine for selling. I still have an income. I see. And that's a very big thing because in the last couple of years they were also in Bordeaux or also in, in parts of Wachau or in Styria. They had really very, very bad harvests because of some um, these, uh, disasters, natural disasters. Yeah, so that's a, a commercial business decision to have two harvests in the, yeah. in the cellar. And that's a, that was really a good decision that my parents started 40 years ago. Yeah. And we luckily we had in the last 40 years not a really bad vintage. Yeah. So I'm really happy. Okay, well, there were, this, is, um, this has been a great conversation. I'm not sure we're done. And I, this is one thing I would like to talk about, which is Riesling and Gruner Veltliner, the two signature grape varieties from this region, both of which are so important. And both of which have similarities and differences. And maybe, can I ask you as, an, as, a, as, a, as a local winemaker, how you see those two grape varieties? Um, it's very interesting to have both of these really fantastic white wine uh, varieties uh, here in the area. Riesling, everybody's saying that or, um, Riesling is the king of the grapes. That's what people Everybody say. says Riesling is the perfect uh, white wine area, yeah. which I agree, definitely. Okay. Uh, but... Um, Grunewitliner was for a very long, long time very underrated because Grunewitliner was in the past uh, a mass production variety. You can really 
or uh, harvest tons and tons and tons from it Bruno produces Bikini. well yeah it produces really well large quantities yes okay but if you reduce that if you make just uh, five four thousand liters per hectare uh, so which is about 50 percent what you are allowed to produce for quality wine right then you can make really fantastic Grunavetlina how do you control those volumes to get the best out of the vine? The, the uh, most important thing is that we are uh, do the, the when we're doing the pruning, we just leave uh, very small benches. Mm-hmm. We are leaving very small benches with just a few eyes on it. Also, uh, nos? Um, is it nos? nodes. Nodes. Yeah. yeah. So when we do the pruning, we just leave some so very few nodes on it so that we don't get too many grapes on it. So you really can control that already in the winter time during pruning. Yeah. Not everything, because sometimes it's still such warm spring, uh, good, good uh, water situation, and then you can uh, divide it in half. You just cut the bottom of the, of the grapes away, very, uh, right after the flowering period. Okay. Uh, then you can reduce it a little bit, or then later on in, in, in the end of August, you just do a kind of green harvest. So you do a very early harvest. So for some grapes, maybe for grape juice, mm-hmm. maybe for some, um, some very basic wines or for some sparkling wines or so. So you can, do, can control a lot of things also in the, in, the, in, the, in the autumn already during harvest time. Let me just, uh, we've, been, we've been taking quite a bit of your time. I, I think we should wrap it up. Thank you so much for having me. We should talk a little bit about your accommodations and the guest services here because you have a very sophisticated guest service arrangement here at the, at the estate. So tell us a little bit about, about your uh, restaurant and all of that. So here at Nikolaev, you cannot just drink wine. You also can, we have a, a wine tavern, a restaurant, where we have, of course, uh, organic dishes and biodynamic dishes. Um, it's really very well known. You can sit under the under this nice linden tree. This is a perfect spot. We have a lot of candles around in the evening, so it's really a very romantical place uh, here at Nikolaihof. Um, this is run uh, by my mother, but I also have three siblings. Um, I have two older sisters and one little brother, and they're all living here in the area, and they're all doing things around Nikolaihof. So Elizabeth, the oldest one, she's running at our guest house, she has built it with her husband. It's just 300 meters away with 23 rooms. It's a nice swimming pond uh, there. It's a sauna house. So it's really very nice to stay there, come here for dinner, then go back, jump in the, in the pool, as in the swimming pond, and then rest a little bit. So that's perfect. Yeah, nice. And the second sister, Christine, she's an anthroposophic children's doctor. So she is also working with the philosophy of Rudolf Steiner, but on the medicine part. And then I have a little brother, and he started a really cool project uh, four years ago. Um, he started biodynamic wine cosmetics. So he's using our grapeseed oil. He's using our own alcohol for, from wine brandy. Uh, we are growing our own saffron. We are using the, the flowers from the linden tree. And all these things together, he makes the first biodynamic wine cosmetic line in the world. Yeah, everybody of us has the biodynamic virus. 
It's been such a great pleasure to be here. I've enjoyed every minute of it. The wines are amazing, and uh, the story is just so interesting, so fascinating. There's so much here. We could talk for hours and hours and hours, so thank you so much. How should we end this podcast? Like we have started it with a glass of wine. I think that's always good. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Danke schön. Bitte sehr. Nicholas. Zum Wohl. And there's the bells of Nikolaihof. And with that, we've finished up our podcast with Nicholas Saas from Nikolaihof Wine Estate in the Wachau in Austria. Thanks very much for joining us. And that was the wonderfully charming and dynamic Nicholas, or Nikki Sass. We drank some very special wines during this episode, including the famous 100-point Vinotech Riesling, in this case the 2002 vintage, which spent 16 years, if you can believe it, in cask. And we also explored many of the special corners of the Nikolaihof winery complex. What an experience. Roman-era cellars, 350-year-old beam presses still in use, Celtic ritual sites, and that's not even mentioning Nikki's ultra-cool collection of vintage Steyrpuch 4x4 Jeeps. See the website for pictures of all of that at www.thewinebeat.com. And for the companion article that I mentioned previously, Nikolai Hoff, History, Wine, and Energy in the Wachau. Thanks for joining me on this special episode of The Wine Beat. And to take us away, here's the fabulous Jim Wilson with our theme music. See you next time. Take care. Bye. your whiskey, you can talk about your beer, you're looking for the kind of talk, you ain't gonna find it here, only wine, my fine wine, from the old world to the new, you'll find a different point of view.